Hello and welcome to the Global Cosmetics News Podcast. Today we'll be talking about palm oil and its alternatives. And first, it's my pleasure to introduce our panellists. In the studio with me today, we have Lorraine Dalmere, who's owner and director of Formula Botanica. We have Amajit Sahota, founder and president of Ecovia Intelligence. Heather Ducharme, sustainable sourcing manager at The Body Shop. And on the phone from the US, we have Lisa Gandolfi, who's director of marketing at Inalex. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Thank Morning. So palm oil's received a bit of a bad rep over the past few years, um, particularly in the wake of the Greenpeace campaign, which was featured by um, a few retailers, Iceland and Ecoplaster among them. What's so wrong with it anyway? Um, Amajit, do you want to start us off? Well, I, I think the story is really about deforestation in Southeast Asia. You know, well, if you look at deforestation, the two major hotspots in the world, it's the Amazon and it's Southeast Asia. And it's palm oil, which is causing a lot of problems in Southeast Asia, where they're destroying a lot of virgin forests to pull up palm plantations, mainly for palm oil. So that's where the negative press is. But that's the major issue. Heather, do you want to add to that? Sure. I think, you know, the body shop view is that palm is not bad in itself. You know, the oil itself is a good ingredient that has really serious social and environmental issues, deforestation being the one, of course, that's been really rightly pointed out by a lot of NGOs, including Greenpeace. Um, I think the, you know, if you want to talk about the bad side of palm oil, we'll get, hopefully we'll get to the other sides of palm oil. But I think we also have to remember the people side and you have to remember that um, there are really serious labour issues as well in palm oil plantations and child labour, forced labour issues have been pointed out, human rights issues in terms of land ownership and land grabbing. So there are other there's social problems as well as environmental problems with palm oil. Um, right. Yeah. I think a lot of people look at palm oil and automatically think about orangutans and the sort of big species. But I think it's also important to point out that according to the IUCN, there's 193 critically endangered, endangered and vulnerable species that have palm oil production as one of their main threats. And I think that's one of the, the big negatives. It isn't always highlighted because we often only talk about orangutans, but it does go wider than that. Lisa, do you want to talk us through the advantages of palm oil? Why is it used in so many products? I think Intellect definitely shares the view of the others on um, the palm oil industry being important to beauty. It's a very versatile building block for ingredients in beauty, um, particularly because the carbon chain cut is so wide and you're able to extract different carbon chain lengths. So they can do a variety of different things. The lower uh, carbon chain lengths like a carbon-8 are great for preservation. The 12s are great for foaming and making surfactants. And then the C16s or 22s are really have a moisturizing feel and conditioning properties on hair. And then, of course, if you keep all of them together, you get other unique benefits. So there's a lot of advantages from a performance point of view. Um, it's also you know, moving towards a, a much more sustainable supply. And it is an economic supply. So it's a way for ingredient companies and finished goods companies to bring their products to a wider group of people. Um, and I, I think all of those things are really beneficial about it. And one of the reasons that you know, I think there's so much effort in the industry to make sure that it becomes a much more sustainable source of, uh, of raw material for us. And when we're talking about sustainable palm oil, can the disadvantages, do they apply to sustainably sourced palm oil or is that the answer to all the problems? Uh, Amajit, do you want to start? Well, uh, one of the key points I want to make is some context. When we talk about 
palm oil used in the cosmetics industry, it's only 5% of all palm oil produced. And most of the palm oil which is produced is actually from the flesh. It's actually palm oil. And over 80% of that is used by the food industry. So to give some context, the kernels are, you can consider as a byproduct of palm oil production. And out of those palm kernels, the biggest user is not actually the cosmetics and home care industry. So if you, let's look at the ratio. For every hectare of palm oil, you know, for palm oil plantation, 80% is palm oil used predominantly for the food industry. Then the 20%, which is the palm kernel oil, only 5% goes into the home and personal care industry. So, you know, I think it's a bit wrong to demonize the beauty industry for all the problems in the palm oil industry. It's really the food industry, which is the majority user. So that's the first point, you know, in terms of context. The second point in, in terms of efficiency um, palm oil is the most efficient vegetable oil there is. Looking at some statistics, one hectare produces six litres of palm oil. The nearest oil is coconut oil. That produces half as, half as much, under three, three litres. Then you talk about soybeans, that produces less than half, half a litre. So I think palm oil has a very important role to play because it's the most efficient vegetable oil there is. There are sustainability issues, but I think... The issue is, I mean, one of the key points is we can't just switch away to something which is going to be less sustainable because you're not going to get that volume. Heather, do you want to add to that? Yeah, sure. I think I think looking at some of the advantages of palm oil, of course, as, as Lisa's already talked us through, that there's really it's a sound technical ingredient, very flexible, affordable, available. That's fantastic. But if you really focus even on the sustainability advantages, I think this efficiency argument, the productivity argument is really strong. So five to 10 times more productive than the next available vegetable oils, plant-based oils. So that's really significant from an environmental point of view. It just means that you can use a lot less land to produce a lot more oil. If we had to replace all of that production that you get from palm oil today with other substitutes for palm oil, you just use up way more land. And you would probably have unforeseen deforestation, habitat destruction, other <coughs> kinds of environmental problems. So I think from our point of view, that's one of the really significant sustainability advantages of palm oil. I think the other thing that's really interesting for us as the body shop, considering our history and our position as a B Corp and, and part of Natura, uh, which is a Brazilian cosmetic company that's also B Corp certified, Benefit Corporation certified. So as a group, we're really committed to understanding and delivering on the triple bottom line, social, environmental and economic. But you know, one of our, both Natura and Body Shop have, have a history of working at a producer level in communities to source interesting traditional ingredients from various geographies around the world. Palm oil is actually a really interesting traditional ingredient in West Africa, where it's originally from. So it's, it's traditionally used for millennia as food, but also as medicine. And so this, it's, you know, it's got its, this history that I think is, is not known, and it doesn't discredit the serious negative impacts where it's grown in, a, in an improper way, in a de destructive way. But it's, it's one of those ingredients that actually, if you look at the plant and the oil, it's quite beautiful. It has a really interesting story and in how it's used by the people in West Africa. I mean, it's still, I was just reading an article here on my way on the train in, in Nigeria. It's actually used to, as an antidote to poison and for gastrointestinal problems and skin problems and moisturizing, of course, traditionally. So as well as headaches and pain and so on. I mean, I think just trying to take a different lens on the ingredient itself is really one of the things we should be trying to do and thinking about it. 
Anything to add, Lorraine? Well, just from a, an advantages perspective, I mean, we're talking about the, the way it's grown, you know, it's it's obviously perennial, it's evergreen, it, it produces year round, and you don't get that from a lot of other crops. And it can succeed in soils that just can't sustain other crops sometimes. On the other hand, I think, does sustainable palm oil have a, a role to play? Yes, it does. But given the levels of consumption, which are just rising and rising and rising, I think we're currently at 70 million tonnes worldwide. And I think they're predicting that to grow to about 240 million by 2050. I just don't see how even sustainable palm oil can really provide what we need at that point. Furthermore, even at the moment, um, I think about half of certified sustainable palm oil isn't actually being used or it's being sold as uncertified or just plain palm oil because there isn't a market for it. So I think Consumer demand has a huge role to play in making palm oil more sustainable and maybe using less product overall. But obviously that's a very complex issue and one which we probably won't solve today, but I think that sits at the crux of the whole argument really, which is also the way we look at it at Formula Botanica. Lisa, we've um, Amajit touched on some of the alternatives to palm oil. Do you want to add to that? What what are the alternatives and, and why are they not as good or are they as good? Are we close to something that could be? So that's a really interesting question because as a if you think of an alternative as a direct replacement, I think it's it's clear from what everyone's added here that that would be really difficult to accomplish. And it's one of the reasons that palm is so pervasive and continues to be pervasive and and we don't see it really going away in the future. I think it poses an interesting challenge to chemists and I think in the beauty industry, maybe more so in the food industry, we have that luxury of uh, getting to play with other things because our volumes are smaller. Um, and so it gives us really a challenge that I think a lot of chemists embrace of finding alternate sources to palm that could do the same thing or maybe something different and still interesting. Um, and so there are quite a few. Um, one of the the sources that we found particularly interesting at Intellex is the rapeseed oil or commonly called brassica oil. So that's a really interesting crop. It's not the same yield as palm, uh, but it can be grown globally, which is really interesting. It can be grown non-GMO. Um, it's a nice crop because it um, it's a winter crop, and so you bring it in into your rotation. So it has a lot of nice benefits to it. And then, again, we really have to focus on performance because, you know, consumers really care about ingredients and they care about sustainability, but they care most about performance. And so something like that brassica oil actually has a completely different performance than a palm oil because the oil is made up of a different set of triglycerides. And so you can find really interesting um, aspects when you start to branch out into these other oils um, or other feedstocks. And that's something um, at Intellect that we have sort of core to what we do, where we understand that palm is important and we're part of the roundtable and sustainable palm oil, and we have palm in our supply chain. And then when we're doing new R&D developments, we're also looking to other feedstocks to see what we can do with them that might be interesting or different or new to bring to the industry. Let's talk a little bit about locally grown versus yield because is now we're looking a lot about carbon footprints in our ingredients as well. Is it better to grow something locally that might have a smaller yield? Amajit's shaking his head. Do you want to start us off? I, I just wanted to follow up on the comment we heard from Intellex because um, I agree there's a lot of other... Um, 
alternative vegetable oils that we can use, but a lot of them are predominantly used by the food industry. And there's a whole new argument there. We're using palm kernels, which is not really used in the food industry. It's used a little bit in the confectionery industry. And moving to coconut oil, moving to rapeseed oil, moving to soybean oil, which is predominantly used for food applications, you're going to open up a whole new argument, isn't it? Isn't it better to just stick with kernel oils, which is not competing with food crops? So I think sustainability, you know, when you look at it, it's not just about efficiency of the oil, but the alternatives. You know, we've got a global population of 7.5 billion, expected to reach 9 billion in the next 15, 20 years. Surely we should be focusing on producing more food crops as opposed to food crops for the beauty industry. So I think that's another argument that we need to look at as well, because the alternatives are all food-based crops. What about other waste materials we've seen very early stage experiments and certainly not at the scale, but coffee grounds, for example, other upcycled ingredients. Are those possibility, Heather, do you want to... For palm feedstocks particularly, as a substitute or in general? Uh, instead of palm, as a palm alternative, if we used other upcycled waste products. So it's not an area that I'm an expert. It's a very technical area. My understanding, and maybe Lisa will be able to comment more on this or, or Lorraine, but my understanding is that it, they're just not feasible at scale right now. They are really, really, really early days. And so, you know, they might be very technically interesting uh, to experiment with in a kind of, you know, ingredient R&D way. But I, I, I can comment a little bit. Most of the upcycled ingredients are used for active ingredients. They're not used as a vegetable oil. They're not used as an oil or a fat like shea butter or coconut oil is. So they're using active ingredients from a waste material, but not as an oil, not as a base for a cosmetic product. But maybe you would like to comment a little bit. Well, I can't say I'm an expert on this either, mm-hmm. but from what I understand, I mean, when you're using algae or yeast relying on feedstocks to produce lipids, that could be an alternative to palm oil. They they need those feedstocks. And the question is whether those feedstocks can ever be sustainable. Because if you're, for instance, wanting to use waste byproducts, those aren't scalable unless you produce more waste, which I suppose we do. But on the other hand, you may then start using virgin feedstocks, which creates a whole other issue. And that's the issue with sustainability. It isn't generally down to one single measure. We talk a lot about locally grown. We talk a lot about land take. I mean, you could take a a hectare in France and grow sunflower oil and you could take a hectare in in Indonesia and grow palm oil and say, well, you know, I get lower yield from my my hectare in France, but maybe you have a lower biodiversity loss. On the other hand, maybe you use more water. Maybe you only kill off 100 butterflies. Is 100 butterflies equal to one orangutan? You can't easily put a measure on these things. And I find that the conversation has been made very simple. And looking at those those single aspects. So sustainability is a very complex thing, which I'm, I'm sure you know all about as well at the body shop. But uh, mm. yeah, I don't think there is a simple answer. And I don't think alternatives are ready to scale to the level we need them at the moment. Lisa, do you want to add anything to the alternatives? I would agree with the others on that. The scale is just really difficult when you get into these um, newer technologies. And that's how it's been for a long time. I think there's definitely hope that we will get there in the future. I mean, you can take something like the um, natural hemisqualine that comes from a biofermentation process. And I remember 10 years ago that that wasn't scalable. So it wasn't something that could be used in um, higher volume products, things like emollients or emulsifiers that you sell more of and you need higher volume in beauty. It was relegated more to 
the active area. But as the technology has improved and the engineering has improved, things have come online and we figured out how to make them scalable. So there's also just that always that interplay of what's the drive and how much drive is there to advance the technology. Um, and sometimes it does only take one or two companies to really move that forward in a meaningful way. And let's touch back on on what Lorraine was just saying about how sustainability is a very complex topic. Do we think that campaigns such as the Greenpeace campaign simplify it to a point where it's vilifying something that actually is better than its alternative so consumers aren't understanding these complex messages. Um, Heather, do you want to start us off on that? Yeah, I'd love to jump in on this one. I think we really have to recognise and appreciate what Greenpeace has done in the palm oil space. I mean, they drew attention in such a massive way, a really important way to an issue that wasn't getting that attention. And they did that by simplifying and being very black and white about the issues. They said palm oil equals deforestation equals killed orangutans, bad. And that that boycott strategy, that aggressive tactic, campaigning tactic, is something I think the Body Shop as an activist organization can really appreciate as a tactic, as a tactic to raise the, the visibility of a really important issue and a really important problem in Palm. And then you get to the stage of, okay, we've got the awareness raised, what do we do? And that's where you get to all those complexities. How do you solve the problem? And I think, you know, even Greenpeace will probably acknowledge that that a campaign is different than a problem-solving strategy, which is much more long-term, which is much more about that messy engagement with people in places and real issues and supply chains that aren't always traceable and that involve millions of people and that they have, you know, there's nothing is black and white again. So, you know, I think there's a body shop we really respect. Um, the, can, you know, organizations like Greenpeace who can draw that attention, can focus companies' minds, can focus consumers' minds on really important topics. And then as people like me who are in the sourcing department of a big company, um, we have to then think, okay, how can we solve this problem? And for us, you know, for the body shop, completely reflecting, I think what we've heard around the table and on the phone is is there are alternatives to palm oil, but just moving away from them doesn't solve the problem that Greenpeace was pointing out in the first place. It doesn't actually stop deforestation, particularly as com- cosmetics consumers, because very rightly, Amarjeet has pointed out, we're tiny. We're very tiny as an entire sector. If all the cosmetic companies stopped buying palm oil today, it would make no difference to deforestation in Southeast Asia or elsewhere where it happened. So, you know, I think, again, respect to Greenpeace, respect to all of the other many NGOs who've been campaigning on this and working on this for many years. Um, but we still have to solve the problem. And for us, the Body Shop is always looking for ways of how can we drive positive impact through our trade, through our business? How can we use our business as a force for good? That's the whole purpose of us being a B Corp and part of Natura & Co. Amajit? I want to make two points there. The first thing is I think Greenpeace has done a really great job in terms of raising awareness. So I agree entirely with what Heather said. But I think the problem is solutions because there appears to be no viable solutions in terms of alternatives to palm kernel oil at the moment, apart from RSPO certified palm oil. Uh, And the second point I want to give there is as an example uh, Ecova, which is the most uh, eco-friendly home care brand, they produce detergents, and they took a decision about five, six years ago to eradicate palm oil from their formulation and switch it to algal oil. But the problem was, when they started producing that, they had to use GM ingredients, they had to use biotechnology. And most of their consumers are dark green. They don't want to have nothing to do with biotechnology. So the alternative was much worse. So it could have 
prevented deforestation. It could have helped, you know, prevent all of these hundreds of thousands of hectares of farm, you know, of uh, virgin forest being reduced. But if more companies moved over, the consumers would not have accepted it. So I think the key message there is, one, there's no viable, sustainable alternative at the moment. And the second thing is consumer acceptance. So you may come up with a great alternative tomorrow, but consumers may not accept it because it's not natural, it's not sustainably produced. And if it's produced in a lab, then there's going to be questions about how, you know, how was it produced? What impact is it going to have on the environment in the long term? All right. Um, well, my alternative, and I'll, I will keep coming back to this, is that I think we do need to consume less. Now, obviously, at Formula Botanica, we teach indie brands how to start a brand, how to formulate. And the majority of people who come to us, they don't want to work with palm oil. Now, they avoid palm oil as a, as a main ingredient. They use other emollients. But uh, it's really hard to avoid when it comes to a lot of functional ingredients, emulsifiers, surfactants, etc. Um, nonetheless, they, they do their best. And that is a niche that is very much growing for them. And when you're a small brand, obviously, that's much, much easier to do than some of the, the big companies. But ultimately, I think we don't need all of these products. And that's where a lot of indie brands are coming um, at it from as well. You know, we we don't need a 10-step Korean skincare regime. We don't need all these different products on our shelves. Instead, we want to embrace mindful, slow, sustainable beauty where, you know, we're incorporating multifunctional formulations, formulations that can maybe last a little bit longer. And that's where I would like to see the industry growing. And obviously that that will be a challenge because that's changing consumer mindsets as well. But Having sustainable palm oil is great, but ultimately our demand for palm oil is not going to decrease. Sustainable palm oil only makes up a fraction of the total palm oil produced. Those forests are probably going to be cut down. And that's a really sad reality that we need to face up to. And the only way that's going to stop is if consumers do become aware of it, which is why Greenpeace and other NGOs running these campaigns to raise awareness is so important. But ultimately it has to come down to the people who, who pay for the products at the end of the day. Lisa, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I would also just add that I, I think we're at an interesting point in this industry where we are starting to see brands that are aware of the impact of Palm and what their potential consumers might care about and whether or not they'd want to use it or they wouldn't. And and I think we have a, also a responsibility within the industry to make sure that consumers are educated well and so that we don't demonize Palm and take away a really critical source when we are moving towards sustainable sourcing of that. And and as we said, we're a small part of the entire industry. In any case, it's, we've eliminated so many ingredients um, by miseducation of consumers that I think it's just really important for us as an industry to start making sure that our consumers are educated correctly, being transparent about what is good and what is not good and what we're doing to try to rectify situations that might not be good today and how to solve them for the future. But I, I really do think uh, you know, there's a place for Palm, and I would really be sad to see the industry move completely away from it. We also just have the ability as the beauty industry to influence consumers in a strong way and so, of course, we want to influence them to a more sustainable source and to care about deforestation and to care about the social impacts that the palm industry has. If we can also use our voice in a positive way so that consumers don't completely go away from palm in all of their life aspects. I mean, it touches much more than beauty. 
um, but we may have a stronger voice and a better way to impact them and help them understand what's being done to improve the conditions for workers, what's being done to improve the environmental impacts and, and things like that. I think there's just a voice we can use in a positive way here before this goes to a place where it's completely demonized and we have a really important source uh, taken away from us. Thank you, Lisa. Let's talk a little bit about what's preventing full sustainable sourcing of palm oil and traceability. Um, do you want to start us off, Amajit? Yeah, I think the first point is I want to repeat what Lorraine said. Um, demand is lagging supply. The market share I actually have is 20% of all palm kernel oil produced today is certified. So in terms of production, the market share is very high. But in terms of demand, it's less than half of that. Uh, I haven't got the exact number, but it's less than 50% of what's produced, which is actually being bought as sustainable palm oil. So there's a really big issue. Even if we can get to 40%, 50%, what's the point if the demand is not there? There's no incentive for these smallholders, for these plantations to get RSPO certification if there's not a market for it. So I think there's a very big issue there in terms of demand. And I don't think it's just the beauty industry. To add some context, you know, we've done a bit of work in this area in terms of palm oil alternatives. In terms of palm kernel oil, coconut oil, babusa oil, EU imports 1.83 million tonnes. Asia buys 2.1 million tonnes. And most of the demand globally is increasing from Asia. So we can do all the great stuff by demanding more sustainable, certified palm oil. But if in the emerging markets like in Latin America and in Asia and in Africa, they just want to get a cheap, efficient vegetable oil, we're not going to make a difference. So the first point is a demand. We need to buy more certified uh, palm oil. And the second point is we need to have that demand global because we can do all the great stuff here in Europe and even in North America. But if the emerging markets are not going to be buying sustainable palm oil, and that's where most of the increases are coming from, then we're not going to really make a difference. Heather? I definitely agree. As a global business, we are looking globally at, at where the palm oil comes from and where it's consumed. And, and again, the one of the main challenges, of course, is that the majority of demand is for food in, in Asia. And that's that's where palm oil is used. And, you know, it's this question about local, is local better? Well, local in, in for our customers in Indonesia and Malaysia, they are buying and consuming locally produced vegetable oil from palm. So, you know, I think if, if you're not looking at that bigger picture, it's really, you're missing a trick. And I think in terms of educating our consumers, I want to speak about this a little bit from a body shop point of view. And our customers are very switched on. You know, they're very interested in sustainability. They care a lot. They're rightly concerned about deforestation and about labor issues in the palm oil supply chains. But I think it's not fair, actually, to expect our customers who are looking, you know, they're going into a shop, they're trying to buy a product that has a long list of ingredients, some of which are not even recognizable as something that contains palm. And how are they possibly reasonably expected to sort out what's good palm oil, what's bad palm oil? I really think the responsibility here lies with companies lies with the supply chain, lies with people who are paid to look at those supply chains, understand them, understand what's sustainable and what's not. 
And that's, you know, that's what we're doing. And we're, the body shop is buying 100% of our volumes are covered by the RSPO system at different levels of traceability. We try to put our money where our mouth is. We try to create, you know, we do our bit to create a market for more sustainable practices. We, we actually direct some of our RSPO uh, funding directly to smallholders in Indonesia, groups that, that we, we can't trace physically back to, but we can put our money where our mouth is with them. And so we're kind of doing everything we can within that supply chain and that system to to contribute to more sustainable production of palm oil. And, and that's important to us. Um, but the challenges are still really there. You know, what's so difficult about it? And I think one of the biggest challenges that, that we haven't mentioned so far is traceability. Uh, so how do you really know where your palm oil has come from? And this is this is particularly difficult for cosmetic companies. And so one of the things we've really been happy to help start this year is an in initiative called Action for Sustainable Derivatives. Um, it's a really catchy name. I know it's, it's not so exciting, but for those of us in sustainable sourcing, it's quite exciting. And this is a group of cosmetic companies and personal care companies and, and oleochemical companies like Inalex and so on. Or actually, Inalex isn't part of it, but com companies like that who've got together and said, look, we really struggle in the kind of cosmetic ingredient supply chains that we're looking at to figure out where a palm comes from and whether it's sustainable or not, because traceability is just not. There's too many steps in the chain and too many traders involved and our volumes are too small and it's too expensive. And, you know, there's lots of reasons why. So we've gotten together, put some money in a pot and engaged an expert consultancy called Transitions, um, who will basically, as a group, pooling our funds, pooling our data, pooling our supply chain information, uh, help us reach much better traceability. So Because you can't, you can't really get to sustainable palm oil, really genuinely sustainable palm oil, unless you know where your stuff is coming from. So by next year, we hope to have much better traceability as a group down to mill level, which is the, the second step in the supply chain. So, you know, I think this is something we'd, we'd like to be people to be aware of in the industry. So stakeholders who might be interested in, in really tackling this big, big challenge for cosmetic buyers um, to look into the action for sustainable derivatives. Lorraine? I just want to touch on the topic of education because I, I think this is always a really interesting one. And being an education um, institution at Formula Botanica, you know, this is something that's very close to my heart. Thinking about this this podcast and preparing it for it today, I, I saw quite a few parallels between the whole paraben debate and the palm oil debate. And uh, in my opinion, this whole parabenoia that, that arose uh, in the early 2000s gave rise to the, the naturals movement in the indie sector. And I often see the big brands get it wrong with education. And often consumers feel like they're being talked down to. They don't trust some of the, the giant multinationals. And that often completely backfires on them and then leads to consumers completely rejecting and taking the opposite me message of what they've just been told. So I think that absolutely needs to be education. I completely agree. But there needs to be education in a way that where consumers feel empowered and feel like they're not being talked down to. And that's a really, really hard balancing act. In terms of um, the sustainability, just to come back to that one again, I think the other thing that's really interesting is that what we're creating over there through RSPO is a, a two-tier system where you've got plantations that are creating sustainable palm oil just for the, the Western market. And then you've got this whole other system that is just, as you've both said, providing, um, providing food, basically, cooking oil for, for Asia and other parts of the world. And that isn't sustainable at the end of the day. So I don't, I don't know what the answer is, but I think uh, it's, it's going to be a big challenge ahead of us. And I think education has to play a massive role in it. Lisa, anything to add on the sustainable traceability front? Yeah, so I'm excited to hear about the action for sustainable sorting. This is 
something I think the industry definitely needs. It's a really big struggle to be able to get true transparency and true traceability um, as far down the supply chain as we'd like to go. You know, we have our sourcing people constantly looking into that for us to answer questions that we're being asked by our customers, like the multinationals that are really interested in this topic and want to make sure that they're providing that full traceability to their consumers as well. And so I think that's really interesting. And in terms of, you know, driving demand, I think it's also one of these areas where we are so small, but kind of we all kind of think every little bit should help. And so, I mean, we've made the decision to completely move our line to RSPO mass balance. Um, so we won't be supplying anything that's not RSPO mass balance palm derived starting in 2020. Um, and a business decision to do that in an economical way, which we also felt was important that it's not something that should be only for the premium sector to enjoy if we really are focused on moving these forward and being more sustainable in our palm sourcing activities, that it's something that needs to be done in an economical way and really focused on the end goal, which is moving that industry forward and its sustainability goals. So I think all of this is important and it's great that it's being recognized. And what I also see from a, an ingredient supplier view is that there's a lot of collaboration with the ingredient suppliers and the finished goods houses to push each other further and make sure that we're all moving forward here. And I think that's a really great collaboration that we don't necessarily see in all parts of our supply chain. Um, and so I think in Palm, there's just a really great focus on on that effort. I'd like to talk a little bit about the point that several people have made thus far that a lot of the palm oil supply that's produced in Asia goes to Asia for food. Do we in the West have the right to suggest to them that this is not a good practice? Is that uncomfortable truth? Ever do you want to talk a little bit about that? Um, unfortunately, it is. Um, I travel a lot to Asia and um, I was in Singapore last year in September where we had one of our sustainability summits, sustainable food summit. And Singapore's in the middle of Malaysia and Indonesia. So whenever they do uh, the clearing of the forest, they burn the forest and they have all this air pollution, it gets the brunt of it. And um, Theoretically speaking, you know, Singapore consumers, they're very educated, they're very affluent, they have the purchasing power, but, you know, awareness of RSPO may be there, but the demand for sustainable products, whether it's organic foods, natural cosmetics, fair trade products, or RSPO certified is extremely low, which I was very shocked. You know, if you're living in a country and the government sometimes tells you do not go out unless it's absolutely necessary because the pollution is so bad. And on the news, when they have an index on, on TV telling you what the haze is in terms of level of pollutants in the air, you know, if everyone's being affected and people are suffering from asthma, you would think that, you know, you would be buying products which is going to discourage, uh, you know, clearing of the forest. But I didn't see it there. I didn't see it in Malaysia. I didn't see it in Indonesia. I don't see it in countries like India. India is suffering a lot from air pollution. Again, similar similar story. It's not for palm oil, but clearing of virgin land for plantations. So I'm sorry to say, you know, uh, we're a bit more advanced in Europe and North America. Asia has a long way to go. And uh, I'd like to see the day where 
Asian consumers not just have the awareness, but they're purchasing more sustainable products, whether it's products with sustainable palm oil or whether it's uh, fair trade products or natural cosmetics. So I really would like to see that because at the moment, Asia is really lagging behind, uh, you know, across the board for sustainable products. But are we saying that from the position that we've already cleared all our forests? You know, are we relying on other people's forests? Heather, what do you think? Uh, it's, I mean, it's always an interesting question. And of course, it comes up. I was in Asia a few years ago for the Roundtable on Sustainable Pommel meeting. And of course, this this is an old, old debate um, between the sort of green imperialism of Western environmentalists versus the, the economic right and, and just the sovereign right of countries to develop their own economies and provide for livelihoods. I mean, three million people are employed by POM, not just in Southeast Asia, but mainly in Southeast Asia. And so, um, yeah, I mean... <laughs> It is a tricky question. I think I, you know, I'm Canadian. So I grew up in a deforested bit of Canada. Um, and that was deforested 200 years ago, 150 years ago for agriculture. I now live in England. England is completely deforested. 500 years ago, there were bears, wolves, much more biodiversity than there is today. Now it's houses and fields and cities. Um you know, I have a lot of sympathy from a personal perspective with Indonesians and Malaysians who who do feel that they have a perfect right to develop their own country and that we've gone ahead and, and done that in the West, if you can speak as the monolithic West, and that, you know, we ought not to be standing on a podium telling them what to do. I mean, I also come from a former colony, so I do have that that colonial reaction to that, um, post-colonial reaction, if you will. At the same time, having, you know, having thought about my own history of, you know, being the great-granddaughter of people who chopped down forests in Canada, um, I think I do actually have an ability to speak of my experience to people who might be going through something similar and say, look, you know, here I am 150 years later. And I am sad when I think about deforestation. And, you know, looking around in my own country where I grew up, I look around and I see the, the ghosts of forests that were. And they've been replaced by cornfields, they've been re by soybean, by, you know, by monolithic, boring, productive, economically important, but you know, it's not a forest. It's not beautiful like it once was. And so then you have to think about 150 years from now. I mean, this is what Greta Thunberg is trying to talk to us about 30 years from now. So try and project yourself forward. And I think we have a right as human beings, whether we're Canadian, Asian, Western, whatever, to speak to each other about human experience and what's better or worse, you know. And there are better pathways, worse pathways. All of it's complicated. But I do think we we can have this conversation and you also have to remember, you know, we're a global company. We have people in who are Asian who sit in, you know, I had a colleague, actually a really wonderful colleague named Jonathan Escalar, who is an expert on palm oil. He was recently in Singapore in our office speaking to our colleagues about palm oil and about how the body shop is evolving its position. And, and our colleagues in Asia are concerned, you know, again, maybe it's not at a customer mass consumption level yet, but, you know, they're well aware of air quality problems. And I think they would be you know, if there was easy pathways to solutions that made their air quality better, that didn't mean destroying all of the remaining bits of beautiful forest in Southeast Asia, they would be all over them, you know. So it's complicated. I completely agree with everything you've just said. Is it an uncomfortable truth? Yes. Um, is it our Western viewpoints being forced onto others? Yes. But on the other hand, we have to show people that we are trying to learn from our mistakes and we want others to do so as well. And ultimately, you know, if we want to do the right thing by biodiversity loss, which we were supposed to have halted in 2010, that didn't work. I think the new targets for 2020, well, you know, 
that hasn't worked either, um, then we have to work together as an entire species and that's going to be really hard to do. So there are some uncomfortable conversations to be had and, and maybe we as the Western world need to put our money where our mouth is. I don't know what the solution is, but yes, we have to show people that we've made these mistakes and, and try and prevent others from doing so as well. But it all comes down to education and how you do that and how you communicate that. And that's always the big challenge. Okay, I'm going to ask everyone for their last comment um, as we're wrapping up. Amateur, would, is there anything that you feel we haven't covered? I want to finish on a positive note. I think um, palm oil, yes, it has a negative connotation, negative perception because of deforestation. But looking at the bigger picture, we're talking about sustainable sourcing and having 20% of all palm oil produced, which is certified, sustainably sourced, it's a great success story. So I think that's really positive. And taking examples from the food industry, over a third of all coffee produced today is now certified or produced according to a sustainable scheme, whether it's something like Cafe or Starbucks or Fairtrade or 4C. 25% of all tea produced today is now sustainably sourced. The market share of Bananas is something like 15%. Vanilla is something like 5 to 7%. So globally, for these agricultural commodities, the percentage of sustainably produced uh, commodities is on the rise. So the challenge is, how can we get demand to keep up with supply? And leading on to that, I think the big corporations have a very important role to play. The reason why we have a very high market share for coffee is because Starbucks took the decision that all of their coffee that they're going to be selling in their stores globally is going to be reaching 100% sustainably sourced. Now, Starbucks is a global corporation. They have hundreds, you know, if not thousands of stores across the world. If we saw more commitments like that from Nestle, from Unilever, as well as The Body Shop, which is already doing a great job, then I think we can partly start solving this problem. We shouldn't just wait for consumers. I think the companies need to step up, make the commitments, have they done for coffee, have they, have they, have they done for tea, as they've done for cocoa, etc. And then we will start seeing some you know, serious solutions to, to this problem. The problem is not switching away from palm oil, it's to have more sustainably sourced, not just produced, but consumed palm oil. Heather? Body Shop is a B Corp. We changed our legal articles of association. So we're, we're legally bound now as of this year. We changed them last year to operate our company in a way that delivers benefit for people and planet as well as for the business. So, and that's, that's core now to the, well, it's core to the Body Shop. Now it's formally recognized. It's also core to the Natura and Co group that we're part of. So Natura, our parent company is was the first listed benefit corporation b corporation and and that just doesn't leave us any you know any excuses really it's now our legal mission to do our absolute best and and again we've done it for a long time in things like our community fair trade program which is 32 years old and we've always been trying to drive positive impact through our business use our business as a force for good and we've done this and we keep doing this with controversial ingredients We've just recently launched um, something called Plastics for Change, uh, our first community fair trade uh, recycled plastic supply chain. So you can you can take controversial things that are widely demonized and you can make something good out of them and you can help people. So 
in our plastic supply chain, we're actually sourcing plastic from waste pickers in India and we're turning them into shampoo bottles. So, you know, pretty crazy things can be done if you put your mind to it and your resources and you put your money where your mouth is. So, yeah, we'll just keep doing that. That's music to my ears. Um, I wish I wish many other companies walked that same walk and did the same thing because I'm, I'm struggling with a lot of the big players in the beauty industry and the way they look at sustainability. And until they start to embrace sustainability as part of their triple bottom line, not just the financial bottom line, I think we're going to struggle as an industry. Um, I would really like to see... I mean, I've seen the beauty industry start to talk more about sustainability over the last few years, which is wonderful to see. And now I need to see them really embrace it because there is still a lot of greenwashing that goes on, particularly amongst the big players. And I see it when I go to all the big trade shows. I would like to see brands, uh, big players start to use life cycle assessment a lot more and really incorporate that into sustainability rather than simplifying the argument and just looking at things like land take. Um, and I come back to it again. I really want people to start to embrace this concept of mindful, slow beauty, where you maybe buy from the smaller players, such as the indie brands that come through Formula Botanica, and do your bit that way. Palm oil isn't going to go away, but that doesn't mean that we can't start to consume less and do our bit for the planet that way. And Lisa? I think we really, I mean, on this call, it's been really uh, great to talk about the fact that we all agree that sustainable palm has a future and it's an important future uh, for the, our industry as well as many other industries. And I think as, as a whole, the beauty industry needs to embrace that the palm industry is becoming more sustainable, more socially responsible, recognize that, communicate that to consumers, and at the same time, recognize that we can have a diversity in our feedstocks and we can find alternate options to palm that are also interesting, useful, um, and have benefits in our products that we can deliver down to our consumers. But I think it's the first step is, you know, recognizing all of that and committing to that. And then I completely agree that we need to commit to our sustainable practices. It can't be um, just paying lip service to it. It can't be just to put something nice into a sustainability report. Um, it has to be real practices and sometimes really difficult decisions that corporations need to make in order to actually show a benefit and make an impact in terms of sustainable practices. Um, and so I think really committing to sustainability, really thinking about it, the complete life cycle of what you're doing um, and how that impacts the life cycle of what your customers will be doing or what your consumers will be doing is really part of looking at sustainability as a full picture and not just our individual pieces um, as different parts of an industry, but thinking about it on the whole and how we're impacting really from the plantations all the way down to where the consumer's uh, finished product ends up in the environment. Thank you, Lisa. Food for thought, literally. Um, I'd like to thank all of you for taking part today. Thank you, Amajit, Heather, Lorraine and Lisa. And thank you to our audience for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>